summoned through the dimension of sound. People explore the musical world which they believe to be true. But there is a world unheard by some that is filled with stories of an unknown reality, a jazz side. Hi, and welcome to Tales from the Jazz Side. I'm your hostess, Veronica Nunn. Now, this podcast of mine is based on a love that I've had forever of the horror genre, and particularly my fascination with psychological fear. Now, on this show, my guest and I will explore these elements of fear, things that frighten us, but the show is not exclusively about what frightens us only. It's also about how we handle that fear and the unique way that we do it as artists and entertainers. Now, I have a tagline for the show, and it's called Have Podcast, Will Travel. What's your story? And besides the stories that you'll hear in this podcast, I'm also recording this live at different locations. And so there'll be times when they'll have ambient noise, it'll seep through like a police siren or dogs barking or something to that effect. And I'll do my best, you know, that I can in order to edit those out. But that's what happens when you do, when you record things live uh, and you go on location. Okay. Now, along with this podcast, I've written a monthly blog where I post detailed information about my guests in the show. Now, the blog is the same title, Tales from the Jazz Side, and you can find that by visiting my website, www.veronicanunn.com. Click on a tab at the top of the page or at the bottom of the page that says that. You can also follow me on Twitter. There is a follow button on my homepage on the website. And, or you could do it the old-fashioned way and go log on to Twitter and search for at Tales from Jazz Side. And that's the at sign, T-A-L-E-S-F-R-M-J-A-Z-S-I-D-E. And if you really want to know about all that we're doing, the blogs, the podcast, and upcoming performances, I also have a new newsletter that you can subscribe to. And that you can find that on my homepage as well. Okay. On this episode of Tales from the Jazz Side, I have the honor to be with an extraordinary person. And that person is singer-songwriter Michael Franks. Now this show in particular is really special for me because on this date, June 10th in 1993, It was the first time I played with Michael in the band. It was my very first gig, and we played in Aruba. And that was 20 years ago on the Dragonfly Summer Tour. When I was trying to figure out when to launch this podcast, it came to me to do it on June 10th, and I would use it as my 20-year anniversary launch. I found all these photos that I had taken over the years with the band, and I, I put those on the website. I thought, oh, I can invite a lot of the musicians that I've had the honor to work with because of Michael and have them as guests. And then the thought came to me about having Michael as my first guest. So I called Michael and I asked him if he would be my first guest. And he immediately said, yeah. 
He said, no problem. We'd be glad to do it. And that, that's pretty amazing. That's great. So here we are. Now, there are tons of places on the web, tons of sites that you can browse to to find out about Michael, you know, get his bio, history, his discography, and all of that. But there is some specifics that I'm just going to mention. There's his website, www.michaelfranks.com. He also has an official Facebook page, and that's where he shares photos and updates with his fans. I've posted uh, an amended bio on my website. I've included these links that I'm talking about here, and that's, of course, www.veronicanunn.com, and that's under Tales from the Jazz Side blog. So if you click on that tab and go to the blog, I usually do a write-up of the different guests that will be on the show. I also, as I mentioned earlier, I did literally go digging for photos over the past 20 years. I found those and I did post them on my website and I'm still posting. There's just so many of them. So just be patient with me and um, hopefully I'll get them all up for you. So in a short amount of time, what can I tell you about Michael and his 40 years plus career? Well, he's worked with the who's who in the music industry, both artists that are in front of the scene and artists that are in back of the scene. He is a singer-songwriter of prolific dimensions. And when I say that, I mean his music is extremely diversified. He writes songs that are in all these different types of genres. He has Brazilian-type tunes, funk tunes, straight-ahead jazz, smooth jazz. It's amazing. So so for me, there really isn't a, a, a specific category for the type of music he does. I feel he is uniquely himself. I mean, I've never heard uh, anybody sound like Michael except Michael. Michael is Michael. Uh, Michael's music has also influenced and inspired and has been the soundtrack to people all over the world. I have heard incredible stories how Michael's music has changed their lives or if they were going through something, they would use his music to uplift them. It just really is remarkable, and I was able to experience this Uh, with the 20 years of being out on the road with him. Michael is a poet, a novelist. He's an activist of both human and animal rights. And he is one of the most generous human beings I've ever met with his time and his talent. So join me now on Tales from the Jazz Side with my guest, Michael Franks. My guest today is legendary singer-songwriter Michael Franks. Um, Hi, Michael. Hi. Thank you for being on my show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're actually my very first guest on this show. Wow. Yeah, so I'm excited (laughs) about that. Now, um, of course, you know how I feel about you. Uh, And I think those that are listening uh, will agree with me that you are a master wordsmith. And, uh, you know, being on the road with you... I, uh, a lot of the different fans would come up and they would share stories about your music and what, how your music affected them. And, uh, and there was this one particular one, I don't know if you remember, but, um, 
it uh, was astronauts, and uh, we were in Houston. Right. Do Do you remember? I do remember. We were we were um, at a at a club called Rockefellers, I think, in okay. Houston. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the astronauts from one of the uh, space shuttles came in. Right. A couple of them did. And they had this collage of photographs. I still have that. <laughs> yeah, no, I have that. I got a, I got a flight patch, mm -hmm. and then, as you said, a collage of them up in, you know, the space shuttle, and they were like floating around. Right, they, with they, I guess they listened to Passion Fruit was the record they were they took up with them, or the CD or whatever the music they took up with them. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Which one was it? Pa Passion Fruit. It was Passion Fruit because I remember it said Passion Fruit lifted us. Oh, that's that is like so amazing when you know a person or groups of people come up to you and they have the oddest things. Because I've seen some wonderful gifts people have given you, but had <laughs> some scary gifts people have given you as well. But that was very impressed. I was very impressed by that. Yeah, that that's a great thing. I I still have that. I think the guy who gave it to me, his name was Tom something. He he was the f flight physician, the flight surgeon. Mm -hmm. And one other of the astronauts on that mission was also at the gig. Okay. So I met two of them. Uh, but yeah, those are great when those when you get things like that. And to, and for me, it it um, it shows how a person's music can be woven into an individual's life and 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 really affect their lives in so many ways. And I I think that's the purpose of us as artists is to be able to uh, to. Inf uh, affect someone's life in a positive, empowering way, and I believe I really you do that brilliantly. I just want to let you know that um, with the lyrics and your words Thank and you. the music, and um, it's just beautiful. So now let's get on. Uh, not only are you a great singer songwriter, <laughs> you're like smiling here. Uh, you also write poetry mm -hmm. and novels, and I understand you were in a movie. Were you you were in a movie, right? I was uh, in a television. I in the mid '80s, I I wrote some music for an, an ABC after-school special, and first they just wanted a song. I wrote a song, and then they wanted me to write the rest of the incidental music, which I had done a few times before, which is you know complicating and frightening to do if you don't really do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, I, I I did that, and then they so I got the music together. There was still a little bit of the show they hadn't shot yet, and they said, "We want you to come on the show as yourself, and be in in the show, you know, right, right. Be, be like an actor." So I reluctantly agreed, which was probably a big mistake. <clears throat> and when when was this? When this was in '86, I think. Okay. And uh, the show was starred this British actor named Michael York, who was very nice and who happened to be, fortunately, a fan of mine. Mm -hmm. He was D'Artagnan in one of the uh, Three Musketeers. Yeah, and he was in one of the, I think, the uh, Zeffirelli version of Romeo and Juliet. That was oh, one of his right. early movies. That's he right. he played Tybalt, I think, one of the guys <laughs> who gets killed in a fight or kills in a fight, one of the many. Um, but in any case, he was very sweet. But then I had a line. You know, they were very few, but I had a few lines. <clears throat> and it was so frightening, you know, to be there, sitting there, and waiting to, and then when you're sitting around with them between takes, so-called, you know, they um, they all start doing their lines and stuff yeah. to you. You know, oh. like, <laughs> you're, like, you're there, right? So to they, practice like Yeah, that? like to stay in character, I guess, or something mm -hmm. while they're moving a camera or whatever they do. 
And so you'd be like, for a moment, you'd be like having tea or something. You'd be, I'd be talking to Michael York. And the next thing I know, you know, we'd say something. It's like talking to somebody who's talking, you know, on a cell phone, you know, with, a, with the ear, other ear turned away from you. Like, and all of a sudden, he'd go into this other thing and be his character. And uh, I found that really difficult, even though I only had a few, I think I had three lines total mm-hmm. in three different places. And I was uh, sitting, it was supposed to be a conference room. And in, in, the, in the story of the after school special, they were making a video about homelessness in LA. Okay. And so the song that I wrote was all about homelessness. And then they were supposedly, you, you, you were, it was like a movie within a movie. They were a video within, within right. a TV show. <laughs> they were, uh, you know, sitting around at this conference table talking about what they were going to do. And so they asked me a few questions, you know, that these were my lines. And when I saw it later, it was so horrible, you know, because you, you really can't, you know, everything they do is like, you know, amped up to 11. <laughs> and if you're not anywhere near 11 normally, right. you know, then it's, it's a big difference between 1 and 11, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so whatever, any of the lines I did, it was like they were barely audible and, you know. Right, because of, of the soft spoken. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you remember any of the lines or, or just? One of the lines, the one, my best delivered line was, uh, they said, we're going to do this and do that. And they looked at me and, and I said, makes sense. And that, that was one of my lines. The longer lines were not quite as successful. You know, can we, uh, can we get that? If well, we Claudia to? has a copy of it. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we should contact Claudia again. Yes. For a price, she'll probably. That's great. I bought up all the copies actually that were available. Really? So nobody can get a hold of it. Well, my my father-in-law, you know, made like a million copies it was back in the days of, you know, VHS. Oh, right, so you can make copies. Yeah. So that but was kind of scary. It was scary. Yeah. It it was uh you know, the other parts were great, like the musical part of it was great and I was, you know, thrilled. I won a, uh, an Emmy for it, which was really wow. nice. Yeah. Wow. But you didn't win for your acting. Though. No, I wasn't mentioned. <laughs> My, uh... Wow. Okay. So now, um, what are you working on? Uh, are you writing music, or you? Uh... I'm writing a little bit of music. I've written uh, maybe four or five things that I like, uh, and I'm trying to finish the book. Yes. The novel. And so I work on that in the morning, and then I take a little break and work outside. Or if it's winter, I do something, try to go outside and do something. This winter wasn't very good for winter sports. But, yeah. <laughs> no, but, not um, at all. And then in the uh, evening, in the afternoons, I try to work on some musical ideas or just practice. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, just uh, so. I'm kind of working on everything at once. I've never done this. I've never done it this way before, but I'm enjoying it. <clears throat> and I I really enjoy taking a lot of time now between records. So mm. uh, it helps to kind of be diversified. Yeah, well, I, I mean, also, you uh, have so many CDs out. So, you know, we can all wait a little bit for, for the next one. You know, do you have an idea when you might be doing the next one or... You're just working on this novel. The novel you're working on is it fiction? Is it? It's fiction. It's fiction. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 uh, about you know music. It's about a jazz musician and his protege, and it's very cathartic because I can complain about all the things I'd like to complain about <laughs> publicly, right? You know, and and do it in this very uh, careful, you know, clandestine way. But um, 
the the record company I, I the, the company I licensed the last record to asked me you know has been asking me if I'll do something and they said they said well why don't you do standards you know? but I <laughs> you know I love standards yeah, as you yeah, know yeah. intimately how how much I admire you know the great songwriters the great American songbook so called but uh, I don't hear myself really as a person as an interpreter of standards you mm-hmm. know. So uh, that was kind of a <laughs> no take. Yeah, well, the but ones that you've nice done though. have been have been incredible. Oh, thank that you. That I've heard you yeah. have recorded. A few, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, then then there was a uh, plan, you know, to do a duet. So I'm, I'll take my old material and and uh, obviously rearrange some of it so it'd be suitable for duets mm-hmm. and do duets with other singers, <clears throat> which is a good idea. But I, I um, also thought, well, it'd be great to make it kind of like duets with other players too yeah that's and so that's kind of where that is it's kind of going nowhere but <laughs> well you have time going around in circles but a nice pleasant circle interesting circles well i can't wait of course thank you you know and i think everybody who's listening whoever's listening i don't think they can wait either you know um now we're at the best part of the show the show that i like the mm-hmm. most are you ready to walk down into the basement? Sure, sure. Okay. All right, so we've got three questions here, and um, this one kind of revolves around, these questions revolve around uh, the concept of fear. And then the first question, tell us about someone that you've worked with who was a little frightening to you, but in a good way. Well, I always loved Joe Beam. You know, I always idolized Antonio Carlos Jobim and uh, I actually got to meet him at a certain point I had just finished recording The Art of Tea and uh, I heard my producer on the phone I was at his office at Warner Brothers and I heard him talking to Jobim and he and Jobim was going to sign with Warner Brothers he had actually been signed to Warner Brothers years before and they were going to re-sign him and uh, I heard him say that they were going to come to New York and go through this sort of ceremony, have dinner with him, and mm-hmm. have him sign the contract. Because he was uh, spending the summers in New York in those years. And so I, for the only time in my life I've ever, you know, been obtrusive, like it's, you know, when he got, <laughs> off, when he got off the phone, when my producer got off the phone, I said, I couldn't help but overhear, I'm just sitting in his office, <laughs> I couldn't help but overhear your conversation, is that Jobim? He said, yeah. And I said, well, if I go to New York, you know, I would just love to meet him. Mm-hmm. If I get myself to New York, whenever you say, and I materialize on the spot, mm-hmm. you say, <laughs> could I just meet Joe Bean, you know? And he said, well, you, you can come with us, you know, you'd be part of our entourage. So it was, you know, uh, it was he and, you know, the engineer that we were going to work with and a couple of the people from Warner's, a couple of vi- vice presidents or whatever. And we were all suddenly flying to New York, mm-hmm. staying in a beautiful hotel and, then instead of only coming to a certain point, you know, and meeting Jobim like as he was walking out of a restaurant or something, <laughs> I was sort of like included in the whole junket. So I met him when, when they met him. I met him when they met him. And then we did have several dinners and, you know, over a period of a few days. But before I met him, I was really kind of, you know, I he was such a hero to me that I was... Really kind of, you know, I had no idea what his, it turned, everybody knows he was like one of the nicest people right, right. on the planet. Like mm-hmm. everybody liked the guy. Yeah. 
uh, he could speak fluently, you know, four languages, and, and he was, you know, like very smart, funny, and you know, in any language, and you know, witty and self-deprecating, and and a genius, you know, and you could really feel this genius surrounding him like an aura, kind mm-hmm. of, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was, it was, I was really intimidated when I first went up uh, to his apartment, uh, and as we were waiting, like knocking on his door to come in, I was like. <laughs> you know, wow, you know, this is, I was like, you know, actually shaking, like, because I just was, I had no idea what his personality was like. Mm -hmm. And I really, of course, you know, admired him and was kind of like a, you know, starstruck fan, I guess. But he was so sweet, you Mm -hmm. know, and uh, right away, you know, like he included me in the whole thing. And then, you know, when everybody else left, (laughs) I stayed for another week and he included me in that. So I got to spend time with him and then he invited us uh, down to Brazil where we recorded um, about half of Sleeping Gypsy, which, which was the second album I made at Warner's. And then I spent time with him, you know, in Brazil and was over at his house. And then every summer after that, when he came to New York, um, you know, I would see him and Claudia and I would go and visit him. And, you know, we just had this great sort of friendship with him. And, uh, you know, he was just like one of the greatest sweetest guys you could ever imagine. Yeah. So what did you when you when you met him did you stumble did you go I, 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 did you call him Mr. Joe? What did you did you say as Tom? Soon, did you <laughs> As soon as I saw him I was totally fine. As soon oh. as he opened the door oh, and okay. and greeted us. He was very expansive and very warm, you know, like and but you don't if you don't know that about somebody, you know. Yes, you really, <laughs> I know. I know yeah, exactly you, you have you no idea, yeah. and, and then you know you you figure out, wow, this guy wrote this amazing stuff, and he continues to keep writing this great stuff. I had heard the record that they were good. he was going to sell to Warner's, the one that, that occasioned this meeting that okay. they were having, and that was great. It was all arrangements by Klaus Ogerman and this beautiful, beautiful stuff. A lot of it concerned with, uh, you know, the world. The ecological stress stresses on the planet, which was interesting. I thought an interesting place for him to go, mm-hmm. you know, in his mm-hmm. music. Uh, still, you know, a lot of it very romantic, and um, not not all the material was about the environment. But um, it's interesting that you talk about it. Some of the material being about the environment because it's really prevalent now. I mean, it stands out even more so because of where we are. Mm-hmm. You know, right now, and yeah. the planet, yeah, closer to the the bad part of it than Absolutely. It is to the good yeah. part of it. Yeah. yeah. So that was uh, that was in 1975. That was oh 75. Yeah. So your first record was 73. Well, I made a record before I was on Warner's. That was in 73. Then I signed with Warner's in uh, 75. We made the Art of Tea, okay. and they didn't really have. They liked. They all seemed to like it, but they didn't really know what to do with it and so they kind of so it was kind of it was a drag for me because we finished the record in june i think or july and then they just kind of sat on it Mm -hmm. and we went all the way into i think you know march or something of 76 before they released it but during that time they acquired george benson and 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 al jarreau and uh, David Sanborn, and so they had like a group of us. They called it Jazz and Progressive. Oh, okay, that's what they called it. That's what they called it, that's what they called it jazz, then. Yeah, Jazz Progressive. Jazz and Progressive. And Progressive. Yeah. Now, were you scared when you made your first record? 
I mean, when you went into the studio to record that, was that scary? Or? I was because I had only made a few demos before. And in those days, <laughs> you know, <laughs> shortly after the invention of the wheel, uh, you know, it was hard to get into a studio and make a tape, you know, have a tape. And, make, yeah. you know, uh, I made a couple of demos at a radio station that um, because I knew this young kid who was a, like a, you know, like a sub engineer there and also like swept the floors, you know, <laughs> and uh, he... You know, somehow I can't remember how we met. I wrote a, I wrote a musical that was produced, sort of off Hollywood Boulevard, and uh, and this kid was in it, and he had a minor role in it. And it turned out he wanted to be an and eventually became a really good engineer, mm -hmm. recording engineer, uh, and so he was connected to this radio station as kind of a you know an intern or something. Mm -hmm. It was it was the uh, public radio station at the time, KPFK in L.A. And I did go over there, and I made a pretty nice uh, demo of six, five or six tunes. And then, uh, but otherwise, I, I think I, I don't really think I had a chance to make a good tape, you know. Yeah. So I would go, I was teaching part-time at UCLA, and I was painting, I was working as a house painter, mm -hmm. making about five times more money <laughs> as a house painter. And, but the great thing was I could sort of control my schedule and so I could have meetings and things. But I used to take my guitar and play tunes, you know, when I was... I wasn't trying to become an artist. I was just trying to have see if people would record my songs. Oh, okay. And uh, so I didn't really have a demo tape. So it was kind of frightening, to get back to your question, to be in the studio all of a sudden. Uh, my producer, a sweet guy who unfortunately passed away recently... Um, was named Richard Markowitz, and he mm -hmm. was actually a composer for film and for uh, TV. Uh, but he was great in, a great arranger, and uh, you know he, he he liked all my tunes, and mm -hmm. and, and uh, I got involved with this little company that promptly went out of business. You know, <laughs> uh, and we made that record. But it was scary, yeah. And I did everything live, you know, like because you didn't have that much money to make your your oh, first record. Right, you didn't have yeah. that much money, and mm -hmm. uh, so I was like in this little like airlock kind of thing in the studio you know i could see the orchestra and some of the things you know there were 26 guys out there you know strings and horns and the rhythm section everything everything happening at once yeah wow because that's and how so, they did it then yeah it was all you know, yeah all at once that's right and it was scary you know like i did do overdubs right uh but it was one of the first 16 track records hmm. that was made at that studio it was a uh, a studio that was actually well known, kind of famous for doing movie soundtracks, okay. which is which is how this producer, since he was basically a music um, movie composer, TV mm -hmm. film composer, that's how we ended up there. United Western Studios, very famous place. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's a great story, actually. <laughs> I think that'll help people who are going into the studio for the first time. You know, to hear. Someone is, you know, you're in the studio a lot. You've made so many records. And so after a while, I mean, I think for me, I'm always scared no matter what it is. Because, it's stressful, right? I yeah, mean, yeah, it's strange because you know you can just do it again. But for some reason, it never really comes off. You know, and you never really think about it that way. And in terms of your own, in terms of your vocals, right? Well, like a lot of times, you know, singing live when the, the when when the, the track is going down and you're singing live some great things happen that you know you don't you can't always replicate those things when then you're there like 
a week later, like doing, yeah. you, know, you want to replace something, yeah. and you're there a week later doing your vocal, and there's nobody there but you. And, and the, you know, you're, lo you're looking at people through, you know, glasses. <laughs> right. You're not looking at the players, That's true. and you're not feeling what they're doing at this moment in time and space. And so that's a reason, I guess, to be really, you know, like if I were a more disciplined singer, you know, I'd be, I, I kept a lot of my early stuff, you know, much to my own chagrin, like some of the stuff I hear now, like, oh my God, why didn't I replace that? But then sometimes you would try to replace things, perfect things, hit a note, you know, right, right. better mm -hmm. or sustain a note better. Mm -hmm. or and you would find that, you might get that right, but you, you know, right. it would somehow disturb whatever else was happening. And yeah. a lot of times you just have to say, well, you know, I'm going to leave the whole thing, whatever, whatever the imperfections are, there's something, there's some kind of intrinsic energy yeah. in there that you can't really replace. Yeah. I think Miles Davis, um, talked about that where it, you know, you just, you have to let certain things go and the imperfect part of it is what, it, in the whole entire picture is the perfection of the recording, right. you know? I mean, I tend to do more um, right then and there, one take, two take, because I it's hard for me to stay Would focused it? on the lyric and what I'm trying to say and the point. It just, it's really hard for me. You know, with the band so, recording again too? Yes. Yeah. So and, and well, I know good. how that's painful like, that could be. <laughs> no, but that's record. good. Like it's your record. <laughs> right, this play true. the tune. Play it again. <laughs> and I try not to torture them so that, that way they'll they'll right. want to do you know do it Another again. Session. But um the record, uh the art of Michael Franks that I recorded of your incredible Which songs. is beautiful, by the way. Thank <laughs> you so much. That was a real new experience for me because I did um, I, I didn't record in the same sort of way. I tried to do a lot of it live, mm -hmm. and a lot of it is. But some of it, I came, I came back later in the studio, and I o overdubbed the vocals on it. And it's, it was great. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that part of it was great. But I, I ran across the same sort of things that you talked about, where you know we sacrifice one part of something for another part. Right. You know? And in right. the long run, we just say, okay... If our if our heart was in the right place and the organic part of it is there, then we tend, that's the best way to go for it, I guess, because right. you can't, you know, there's no way you're going to get that perfection that's of right. this with that. But that's right. an actually great point. Um, okay, so the next question. What is the scariest work in any medium, which is, you know, painting, photograph, book, movie, television show, radio show, whatever, that you've encountered? For me, I would say it was the David Lynch uh, TV series called Twin Peaks. Okay. I, I had not even heard about it, and I was working, I was on the road, I was working with a bass player, a great bass player named Steve Rodby. Mm -hmm. He plays with Pat Metheny now. And uh, he came on the road, and he brought some of that. We, we were on a bus, and we did have a little setup, you know, with a screen and a, and a VHS kind of deck. And he put some of these early episodes I guess maybe he had them sequentially arranged it was just, it had just started on television maybe like a month or two before mm -hmm. it was a series and uh he started you know playing these things and at first you know it was about well everybody probably knows what twin peaks is about but uh there were it got to some you know it got to a certain point where the evil character is named Bob and it turns out Bob was actually played by a guy who was just in the crew mm -hmm. of the film of the mm -hmm. film crew of the TV crew. He wasn't even an actor, 
And he didn't really have any spoken lines, but he uh, looked frightening. And just the way David Lynch, you know, arranged him in the whole tableau of the thing, mm -hmm. he was really frightening. And I remember seeing one scene with him where I was like, I actually got chills up and down my spine. And then there was a scene, <laughs> which is probably more well known, where this little person is kind of uh, dancing i think he also his his dialogue is being played backwards okay. oh, yeah, and he's dancing scene, yes. in a red room i think it right, is right. which is out in the middle of the woods in like a you know evil place right. that the you know native americans knew about yeah. and warned everyone against and those scenes were really frightening like you know you you really uh that was that was the most frightening thing i think i've ever seen in film yeah because i think kind. he uses this kind of stop motion type of thing for the for the little person as he was moving so yeah. it was kind of really jerky yeah. weird right it was like he was dancing in this yeah right and then the dialogue was all backwards it sounded like kind of like polish or something right <laughs> you know that's parodied so i think um what's the show that i like uh with homer simpson the simpsons yeah I they did a parody oh, did of they? that particular scene. Oh, well, I, uh, I think Lisa that. was the one that was dancing. Oh God! It's yeah. like that's a uh, you know I never really was a big fan of Twin Peaks until way way I'm always a fan of things way 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 you know uh, years after it's already right, right. been aired. But um, that's it's interesting. Now why would you think I um, that so, an image like that is would be a frightening thing for someone. I mean, you don't have to say why it's frightening to you, right. but you know what I mean? What could be... Oh, I don't know. I think probably in childhood, you know, you get some images of things you were really afraid of as a child, like, uh, and they kind of, they, they sort of uh, become maybe, you know, crystallized in your mind to the extent that you can remember them yeah. and recall them. When I was a kid, like uh, one of the things that scared me was we lived. I grew up in the San Diego area, and and we lived um, in in, a, in an area called Mission Beach, right on the beach. Mm -hmm. and it was an old wooden house, and I don't, I don't know why, because I was a kid, you know, I was four years old or something. Uh, and my parents uh, were in one part of the house, and there was this kitchen, and then there was a little walkway, mm -hmm. and there was a, like another little room, kind of like over the garage, and that was my room. Okay. So I wasn't even in the house, you know what I mean? I had to go out of my room, across this little parapet, and into the kitchen, the back of the kitchen door, you know. And uh, I remember one time, I don't know what precipitated it, but I remember one time, you know, being in bed and try, and fall, sort of falling. My mother always took me out, you know, and put me to bed and, you know, kissed me goodnight and everything was normal. But, like... There was a there was a, a coat hanger or something. There was a coat hanging that there was an extra closet out there, and there was something that wasn't normally there that I didn't notice in my waking hours, yeah. right? And suddenly, you know, in the darkness or whatever, I looked up and I saw this coat, you know, which in California is a rare rarity right, anyway. Right. This anyway, coat hanging yeah. on a hanger, and uh, you know, I remember being terrified, like so terrified of that, like, and then uh, you know, actually being unable to get out of bed and walk past it you oh, know okay. to go yeah. into the house yeah. to you know seek you know you know yes, sucker yes, from yeah. my parents you <laughs> right. know what i mean who were blithely you know ignoring me uh, <laughs> but in any case you know i think certain images i don't know how that relates to the david lynch twin peaks one but i think when certain images are really vivid like that um you, know, you were talking you included you know paintings as your your uh, 
as one of the possible mm-hmm. things, you know, or works of art or media to refer to. And when I was, when I first, uh, the first time I went to Europe, I was a, I was like a, a you know, sophomore at UCLA, and I took, uh, I mean, I hitchhiked around Europe, and I forget where, somewhere in Germany, I saw the uh, uh, Bosch, Hieronymus Bosch, you know, the Garden of Earthly Delights, I mm-hmm. think it's called. And uh, it's this thing where, you know, all these people are inside these little egg-like things and falling out of the mouths of demons. And and uh, it's just, you know, it's like a, it's like a bad trip. It's okay. like, a, it's like <laughs> right. the, the, no, don't, don't take the brown acid. Right, you know, right. It's like a really bad trip. And I remember when I looked at that painting, going, oh, my God, you know, wow, that is horrible. But because it was static and it was just a painting and you could, you know, peru- you, you have more control with the right, painting. Right, right. You can look at the parts you want and, and, and scan or whatever. And you're going, that is a static object hanging on a wall in yeah, a museum. Yeah. Whereas film tends to suck you in anyway. Yeah. And any kind of film media, you, you, you give you sort of very easily uh, suspend your the willing suspension of disbelief. You very easily suspend your disbelief in a film, you know. Yeah, it's true. And uh, it's... Be- and that was before, uh, obviously, the David Lynch thing was all acted and performed and designed, and you know it was before computer graphics. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. so I think in that way it was much more, you know, ironically much more realistic as a frightening image, I guess. Yeah, and it's it's all, when you think of all the things from childhood that is buried deep in our subconscious, and then all of the visual things that we encounter as, as we grow up, it all kind of combines, and then we see a TV show, or you see a movie, and yeah. all of those things are stirring in the deep depths That's of right. the water, right, right. and they combine in, in a... Uh, remarkable ways sometimes that uh, sometimes don't always seem as if they're connected but it is that weird um, I always think of those uh, images that you see uh, Salvador Dali's types of images mm-hmm. where things are melting into right. you know right. and I think part of that probably for me is that surrendering to the whole you know the, the whole the unknown of the entire picture when we think of um, in you know, we, we're like individuals, but the, 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 the goal for us is to be able to be part of a whole, to accept ourselves as part of the whole. So for me, it's always anything that's melting into, you know, the vastness of the whole, even though I, I know that's probably <laughs> what our spiritual goals right. are, is to right. recognize that we're, you know, all one, but that that kind of fear, you know, Right is can be really. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. It's like, ooh, okay. You know, Got what it. about me? Where did I go? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Wait a minute. Where, who am I? Where am I? So uh, okay, so now we're at the final question, which is, what is the scariest thing that has ever happened to you while performing live? Well, I debated whether uh, you know the answer. You know the both these answers, but my. My, uh, I, I kind of, you know, thought of this one time when I played, uh, I think it was in the mid 80s. We, I played the um, Heineken Jazz Festival in Paris a, a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> it was outdoors in the Tuileries Gardens. Beautiful, you know. And uh, I had just worked with John Patitucci before then on a record. 
and John was playing with Chick Corea in a trio. Uh-huh. And Chick was on right in front of us. We, we, were, we were closing the show. And he had chosen the, the best spot, <laughs> the best you know part, spot in the sequence. And, of course, they were great. You know, they were, we went to see their show. But the whole time he was playing, there was this thunderstorm thing building. And I didn't think much of it. You know, mm-hmm. summer in Paris and like in the afternoon. Like it's kind of annoying. It was hot, you know, mm-hmm. muggy. But you didn't think much about it. And Chick was playing this beautiful, you know, it seemed like a 35-foot Bosendorfer <laughs> right. piano that was right out there. And there was nothing. You know, there's a little sort of like floating, you know, pretty little thing. It was more like an art piece of artwork floating over the stage, right. you know, like not, a little like parachute right. kind of thing, you know, silk. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't anything protective. Right. And so then they did this gig. I got to meet Chick, which I was thrilled to meet him. And... Um, Spoke to those guys a bit, and then it was time, it was time for us to go on. Well, by the time we got on, we got in maybe to like the third or fourth tune, and it started to be violent, you know. Okay. And uh, it was it was sort of windy. We're like, yeah. So, you know, the audience was right there. Nobody moved. Not one wow. person got up. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I'm going to stay, you know, until yeah. somebody says leave or until the audience starts to leave. Right. And it started to rain. Everybody stayed right where they were. <laughs> And so there was enough of this little cover to cover the microphone, sort of. But then, then the lightning—it started to be lightning, okay. and uh, that was frightening. And lightning, and this poor Bosendorfer was like getting wet, you know. And uh, nobody seemed to be in charge. Nobody. Uh, finally, my own tour manager came out and said, "Leave the stage." <laughs> went, we went off, but I think, and that was scary, like physically scary, like being struck by lightning. Well, you know? Yeah, and I and I remember. You know, I'm sure this has happened to you a few times. Every once in a while, you get a mic that has a short end or something, yeah. and you touch it, and you get like a little the, shock, oh, yeah, on, your shock lick on your lip. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so uh, that was happening. And I, I asked for a, you know, for a windscreen, a little windscreen to be, be put on, so that solved that problem. But it just was, you know, it was like wow, yeah. you know. And then I, I, and then in, uh, you know, in 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 my, you know, sort of. Uh, um, workman like French I asked everybody I said everybody you know I think we should all leave you know and, uh, they did eventually the audience left after we did but the thing that I think is most terrifying which is uh, my real answer sorry to be so long winded no no you, I love it which you I know really it. well yeah, I love it. <laughs> uh, is that when you're on stage and you're singing <clears throat> if it, with my tunes especially like some of them if I forget part of a lyric, or if I make a very innocent mistake, because it's doing it as you know, like, is it's weird because you can't really think about it. You you're kind of concentrating on everything. You're you you want to be you want to sing in tune. Yeah. You want to <laughs> be able to hear yourself. Right. You want to be as much as I'm able, which isn't that much, to project what you're doing. Uh, so you're working the microphone and you're thinking about all the technical aspects of it, and you want to be inside what you're doing. You want to you want to f- be back inside yeah, the song, yeah. which after all, in my case, I wrote. So right. I want to be like in it, you right. know, to express to express it in like a, a way that I you know that I feel at least. Uh, so you're you're kind of you're doing all these things. Well, the lyrics, in a way, you're kind of doing it almost, you know, by it's almost like something. Well, yeah, it's I got to think about this, but you don't really think about it that much. Yeah. You know, because uh, you you're, you're kind of it's kind of like this more like rather than a focal point, it's more like this kaleidoscopic thing, and you're kind of constantly trying to adjust these things, all these different things, mm-hmm. your sound, the sound, you know, uh, what you're hearing, what the band is playing, you're 
singing in tune, mm-hmm. being in pitch. And then, of course, the lyrics. Well, as you know from experience, being with me all these 20 years. 20 years. Um, you know, if I, even if I don't necessarily make a mistake, if I sing, like, for example, if I'm on the second verse of a tune and I accidentally start with the third verse, yeah. then when I get, then there's usually a solo, when I get, or a chorus or something, when I get to the third verse, I have no idea what the verse is because you're doing it in the sequential way. It's like, if you thought hard about riding a bike or something, mm-hmm. you go, wow, how does this even work? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. But you just don't think about yeah. it. And the only way it works is if you're moving. Right, right. So once you stop moving... Uh-huh. You're in trouble, yeah, oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Oh, yeah. And that's kind of what happens. And so that is because I get like this sense of dread. And fortunately, <laughs> you have, you know, supplied me in all the problem areas of my lyrics. You supplied me with your own text over there on your, you know, music stand. Uh, and even though I can't see it unless I walk right over and stand right. uh, I know I can, I always know I can walk over and pretend like we're saying something and to look at it right. to see what, Just, what the hell it is, you know. Yeah. And it is, it is scary because... You, the, because we're in that moment of telling that story, if the lyrics get mixed up and you repeat the same thing, it's, it's as if you're telling a story, but then all of a sudden you don't, you leave out like the key part to it that puts the whole story together. Exactly. So I can see it, it but, is really scary. But that's not so bad. <laughs> if you can think of anything, even well, if yeah, you can just repeat you can, it. And you can, though, because you're, you know, you're writer you well yeah but stuff. i mean uh, sometimes you know i can't even think of what it was you know that i could repeat. <laughs> you know because you've only got you know time's running out you know you, you see you see the grains of sand you know falling through the you know flowing through the hourglass yeah. and it's like well what do i do now yeah 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 and did has there ever been a time when you were performing live where i mean i've been with you for 20 years and you mentioned that and i meant to mention that at the very top because today june 10th and 1993 was the very first gig I played with you in Aruba with the band. Mm-hmm. And so 20 years later, we're still here. Uh, better than some married couples, right? And I have been, over the 20 years, you know, I, I got to a point where I wanted to have the lyrics there because that's a fear of mine too. Mm-hmm. And especially when I'm working with you because we had an incident where we played in South Africa. And we were in that big hangar. Yeah. And we were doing, I think, Monk's New Tune. Mm-hmm. And there was just nothing. I mean, I did not, I didn't even know the song. Uh. You know what I mean? I couldn't even, it isn't wasn't even so much about lyrics. It was just, I did not even know the song <laughs> at all. And it was so terrifying that I decided from that point on, I was always going to have, I was always going to cheat and have lyrics. Because yeah. you know, the cats always have, you know, their music stands with the music. Right. So I said, well, you know, I'll have that too. With, right. uh, that was a great idea. Yeah, so I figured, you know, that kind of helps us both. But, uh, well, you know what? I, I am so uh, grateful that you came and hey, gave me this time. My, and my pleasure. And people listening. And, um, and it's been great working with you for 20 years. And, and, and the same is true. 60 more years. Yeah. Ago. <laughs> <laughs> as long as we can make it to the gig. As long as we can make it to the gig. The bathroom was right near, near where we got to go. Well, we've had some pretty amazing experiences, which is so great, too. Yeah, we not have. All it, not all of it we could put on the air, but... No, no. But, you could uh, go in your book, maybe. Put some well, <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, that's what's so cathartic yeah. about writing the book. Because, you know, you can, you, can, uh, you can actually, you know, describe some of the 
you know, insulting things that have happened to us <laughs> over the course of the last 20 years. And you're, you know, removed from it. You're right. one step removed from it. It's in, in another, from the voice of another person. Yeah. So and people can, would never know. They would never know. They would just think, oh, wow, what a great imagination or great development of a character. You well, know? and as you know, the public assumes that it's like this, you know, this grand life, you know, like yeah. you're, that it's always this grand thing. Yeah. It's everybody's fantasy, I guess, to be on the road, on tour, you know, mm -hmm. be in a musical band. And they don't see the, you know, the the parts of it that are kind of <laughs> where the real world I mean it's fun to perform yeah oh that's the best part of yeah it. that's the easy part yeah that is easy but the part. travel and all the other parts mm -hmm. and the technical aspects before a show getting the sound right or, yes, or that's or, fearful it so is we've been at some and how about the things where you you're, we've all the jazz fest, festivals we've played where you don't even get it you don't even get to have no. a sound check you just parachute down on the stage right. and it's like hit it and you don't have any clue what anything you know oh, yeah. if you can hear yourself or anyone else at all. So we basically, it's like we work through, there are all these uh, scenarios of this, these fear factors, so to speak, and we just work through them. And after a while, we get used to um, understanding, okay, there's going to be some really messed up stuff happening, and you get past the fear of it, and you just get it done. Yeah. Because the core, as you're saying, is the performing live, and, and the people who pay their money, and... You know, I always have this thing where I say, um, people get up, they get dressed, you know, they come out of their houses, they go somewhere, they pay their money, and they're here to see us. Yeah. And nowadays, you know, with all the, the, the technology, you don't even, people don't even have to leave their homes. So yeah. Yeah. It, is, we, it is so much for us to make sure that that performance and the things that we do, despite all other things yeah, that come up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's great, and I love it. And um, I thank you again, and I will see you in a couple of months. We have uh, in August, right? August. Las Vegas. Uh, Las Vegas, and then September we have um, Detroit. No, oh, August, August is, Detroit. is Detroit. September, September Las is Vegas. Vegas. And then we're going to Japan yeah. in October, yeah. which should be really interesting to see. That's always the, great, isn't it? I love Japan. It's the greatest. Me too. Yeah, it's just They great. are the greatest people. Very much so. Yeah. So I gotta have you back at some point. So you get you let me know when you have some new scary things um, <laughs> that <laughs> that are coming up this way. But um, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Veronica. All right. Good. <laughs> right. So that was great. Yeah. Right? That did was you fun. did you? Uh, the, I'm sorry, the seat was so hard, but yeah. I tried to put a little cushion. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's a. Uh, The jazz side is always there, waiting for us to enter and waiting to enter us. So, until next time, unplug your ear holes, for you never know what worlds may be waiting for you.